Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present a conversation with Marco Leas, a state senator from the 22nd LD, who is running for lieutenant governor. This was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, June 2nd. Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall. I'm Stephan Cox. I will be your host tonight. I host the Washington State Indivisible podcast. A very big thank you to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. Special thanks to Louise Pate and Kevin Jones. And of course, thank you to all of you for taking the time to join us tonight. Before we get started, I want to Take a minute to hold space to acknowledge the murder of George Floyd and and so many others who have died from police violence and to keep in mind right now those who are peacefully occupying our streets right now across the country in the name of justice. We will be discussing this in detail. So we'll just take just a moment here. So as many of you know, tonight had been scheduled and billed as an event with both Senator Mark Elias and Congressman Denny Heck, both of whom are running for lieutenant governor. On Friday night, Congressman Heck's campaign manager sent the following email, quote, we are going to need to cancel next week's forum on Tuesday. We are sad to have to miss out, but look forward to connecting with Indivisible in the future. We immediately reached out to reschedule later this week or by the end of June to let them uh, and we let them know that we needed to hear back as soon as possible for logistical reasons. We did not hear. And so we have made the decision to proceed with tonight's event with Senator Leas. Only today did we hear back from Congressman Hex representative and it was too late to change our program. So with that. We are very, very excited to be talking this evening with Senator Marco Leas. He has served as state senator from the 21st LD since 2014. He currently serves as the majority floor leader, and he is running for lieutenant governor. Senator Leas, we are so happy that you are with us tonight. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join so many uh, devoted progressives all over the state. Well, I think think the best place for us to jump in, for uh, people who may not be familiar with the position, tell us a little bit about what lieutenant, the lieutenant governor does. What's a job description? Well, it has three primary roles. Uh, the first and most important role is serving as the president of our state Senate and uh, as the only senator who's running for the position out of the 11 candidates. Uh, that is uh, definitely something near and dear to my heart as someone who's worked with our current lieutenant governor really extensively. Uh, the second uh, role is serving as number two in the executive branch. So the Lieutenant Governor supports uh, Governor Inslee and his work, uh, as well as stepping in when Governor Inslee travels or is unable to uh, to discharge his duties. Uh, and then the final responsibility is running a small state agency. Uh, our Lieutenant Governor leads work on the Legislative Committee on Economic Development and International Relations, uh, a joint committee of the legislature, as well as leads work uh, efforts on higher education coordination and increasing access to higher education, and then takes lead on a number of youth development programs, uh, the Washington World Fellows Program, the Legislative Youth Advisory Council, and a new program called Boundless Washington to connect uh, young people with sensory and physical disabilities to opportunities to engage in outdoor recreation and activities in our state. So those are the prim three primary roles. And then uh, obviously uh, has what Teddy Roosevelt called the bully pulpit as a statewide voice on a number of other issues as well. You know, it was a surprise when current Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib announced that he was resigning to join the Jesuit order. So why did you decide to run for the position? 
Well, I was, uh, like so many of you, caught uh, totally flat-footed and did not expect uh, that announcement. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Habib is a personal friend and has been a partner on so many important uh, initiatives uh, throughout my time uh, in politics. And candidly, uh, he called me a few days before his announcement and said uh, he was going to be stepping away uh, to, to pursue this new path in his life. And he encouraged me uh, to take a serious look at it and to run. And so I reached out to the folks that are most important to me in life uh, and spent some time thinking about whether this is the, the best way to serve the people and came to the conclusion that it is for two primary reasons. Uh, one, because I'm the most qualified for the role. I'm the only senator running. Uh, the prime responsibility is serving as president of the Senate. Uh, in that capacity uh, as a senator, but more importantly, as our majority floor leader, I've been responsible for drafting our Senate rules, for scheduling every bill for floor action. All the progress we've gotten done the last three years we've been in the majority, uh, I've been a key player on. Uh, and I've worked closely with Lieutenant Governor Habib's office uh, and in, in his role as president of the Senate. It's those experiences that led him to endorse my campaign, calling me the most qualified candidate in the race. I'm also running because I don't think this is a moment uh, just for a Democrat in the role. I think we need a bold, progressive Democrat uh, with the systemic challenges we see in our economy, uh, the deep and persistent inequities in our society. We need folks with bold, inclusive visions. Uh, that's the, vis the vision and the platform I'm advancing in this race. And I have 12 years of proven results uh, delivering for Washingtonians. I want to bring those relationships, that experience, and that bold and inclusive vision uh, on behalf of everybody in our state. Well, hold that thought for just one second, because I want to delve a little more deeply into that. Uh, but, you know, as we know, the lieutenant governor would ascend to the governorship should Governor Jay Inslee be called to a cabinet position. So I just kind of want to get this out of the way right away. It's a likelihood. Uh, how much did that factor into your decision? Well, uh, you know, it hasn't happened in 100 years, so it's not uh, it's not something that happens very often in our state. Uh, but it definitely what what we know for sure is that Governor Inslee will be out of state and the lieutenant governor will be acting governor. Gov lieutenant Governor Habib has been acting governor uh, on dozens of occasions in his term. So I definitely uh, gave serious consideration to that to make sure that I could. Uh, step in if need be and make sure that uh, state government continue to operate and deliver for the people. I think uh, my work over the last 12 years has covered basically every area of policy that state government handles. I've served on all of the major policy committees. I've also served on, uh, bu on the budget writing committees for all three of the state budgets. Uh, as majority floor leader, I schedule all of the governor's cabinet appointments for their confirmation votes and have taken that opportunity to meet with the members of Governor Inslee's cabinet. So I know his team, I know the issues well, and I have a proven record of, de of delivering progressive results for the people of Washington. So uh, I don't want that role. I'm running to be lieutenant governor. I'm excited to be president of the Senate. I'm excited to build on the work I've done in the Senate. Uh, but if circumstances demanded it, uh, I do believe that I have the qualifications to step up and continue making progress for the people in this moment. Okay. I do want to cycle back to what we were talking about, or about your your progressive bona fides. And I'm I'm just wondering, how would a progressive lieutenant governor differ from, say, a centrist or more moderate lieutenant governor? Where what might we see the difference in those two approaches? Well, I, I will say that um, it is both in the substance of what makes its way through the Senate and being a partner with Senate Democratic leadership. That's been a key uh, partnership we've had the last three years since we retook the majority. Lieutenant Governor Habib has worked very closely with us on our agenda and on key legislation. So the Lieutenant Governor has the opportunity to break tie votes in the Senate 
And we've had a number of not necessarily bills, uh, but, uh, you know, amendments that would curtail or cut back or gut progressive bills uh, where Lieutenant Governor Habib has been the tie-breaking vote as a partner to make sure that we're moving a progressive agenda through uh, the Senate onto the governor's desk. He's also been a key partner in swiftly advancing legislation. Often the minority will use the rules and the process uh, to try and slow down our progress and to prevent us from taking action. And Lieutenant Governor Habib has been an incredible partner in that. The final place where I think it really makes a difference is in what, as I said, Teddy Roosevelt talked about the bully pulpit of these key roles. And, uh, you know, I think having a lieutenant governor who will be a loud voice against an austerity approach as we face a $7 billion budget gap to protect critical state services, uh, I think that is going to be really important. To have a lieutenant governor who has openly and publicly supported universal single-payer health care as the solution to our health inequities will be important in that debate. To have a lieutenant governor who has raised Boeing's taxes and taken on Amazon and believes that our economy is not delivering for all Washingtonians, that it's broken and too much of the gains are going to those at the top and not enough to those at the bottom and those that are working to get in the middle class makes a difference. And so I will use my voice. I will use the relationships. Uh, and uh, the expertise I have around the process, not just to advance a democratic agenda, but to advance a bold, inclusive, and progressive agenda that will put the people of Washington first and deliver real, meaningful progress year after year after year for the people in our state. So you mentioned some of what uh, Lieutenant Governor Habib has done in terms of being the tie-breaking vote, advancing legislation. I'm sure that you are familiar with how good ideas and common sense policy can be held up in bad faith by the GOP and not to mention the Democrats who vote with Republicans. Are there any other tools at your disposal as president of the Senate to deal with GOP intransigence and gridlock? Well, uh, there certainly are the Senate rules and the lieutenant governor's tasked with enforcing those. And I would obviously be fair, but be focused on making progress for the people of Washington. The other role, the lieutenant governor serves as the chair of the Senate Rules Committee, which is an important gatekeeping role. Every bill that comes to the Senate floor has to pass through that committee. Uh, that's often a place where bills die. And so that's a place where I plan to find really bold progressive ideas and ensure that they get to the Senate vote for uh, Senate floor for a full vote by the Senate. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think that there is the ability to call out Republican intransigence. And that's where having the title of lieutenant governor and having that statewide role will give me a platform to tell the media the story of what's happening and tell the people of Washington the story of what's happening, who's stopping progress and who's not. Uh, there's other structural tools as well. The, uh, the lieutenant governor is the one that officially nominates committee chairs and, and committee memberships who appoints to about 100 different boards and commissions. So there are other duties where there's an opportunity uh, to really use that progressive lens and to make sure that we're advancing the interests of the people of Washington in every single one of those. And some of those are things that the public doesn't pay close attention to, but make a difference when the, when the time comes. I will be applying that progressive lens of how can we maximize our opportunities to deliver real results for the people of Washington, not just half measures or more rhetoric uh, or you know small, tiny incremental steps, but the bold action that people demand in this moment. This is going to bring us to our first audience question. As president of the Senate, what, if anything, can you do to curb the influence of corporate money in legislative decision-making? You know, uh, that is a real challenge. In my own race, uh, you know, my opponent has an average donation of $940. Uh, 
and has a, a fundraising advantage on us. I took a look if you applied the city of Seattle's uh, democracy voucher system to the statewide race in the lower limits, uh, his fundraising advantage would shrink to less than two to one if you uh, were able to, to really focus on small donors and real donors uh, instead of uh, people with significant, significant contributions. So uh, this is a place where the bully pulpit is gonna be critical uh, to making sure that we are advocating for, and Seattle has demonstrated with their democracy voucher program, a really good model for how we deliver a solution in this broken Citizens United environment at the state level uh, to tackle that corporate special interest money. I also, when I was in the House of Representatives, advanced a proposal uh, to publicly finance our Supreme Court races because we want our judiciary to be above reproach. So I would continue uh, to find opportunities to champion those issues. Uh, as president of the Senate, my task would be really to find those progressive ideas in the Rules Committee, help get them to a floor vote in the Senate, advocate for them. And when we win, it will be in the face of tremendous special interest and uh, and wealthy donor money. That is how we will win. We are going to get outspent in this race. I just I'm going to predict it right now. But we're going to win because our message is stronger. And the message I'm going to take with me when I go back to Olympia is they tried to wash us out uh, in a wave of corporate cash. It didn't work. It's time to fix the system so that does this doesn't happen again in race after race after race. I was going to get to this at the end, but might as well plug it now. Uh, where can people go to uh, to donate to your to your campaign? Bar well, we use ActBlue, which uh, all progressives uh, hopefully are using ActBlue. It's a great uh, platform, but you can go to Marco for Wa, M-A-R-K-O-F-O-R-W-A dot com. I, I'll put it in the chat there as well. Um, and that's the best place to connect up. We're working hard to build that small donor army uh, to compete, uh, but that is absolutely what we need in this moment. Terrific. And I know that Kat will have that information available for everybody in the chat bar. So I'm going to move on to a series of policy questions right now. And as we mentioned, the lieutenant governor ascends to the governorship should Governor Inslee be called to a cabinet position. So I'm going to ask a series of policy questions predicated on that possibility, while of course still recognizing that you can also impact policy as lieutenant governor. And I, I want to start by addressing the recent protests and civil unrest here in Washington state and across the country in response to the police killing of George Floyd and several other unarmed black Americans. There is there's so much to unpack here. I, I think let's begin with police accountability. So as governor... What would you do to hold to account police officers who commit acts of violence, particularly against people of color? You know, um, we in this state have demonstrated through the passage of Initiative 940 that we take this issue very seriously. As majority floor leader, it was one of my great opportunities to bring that vote, that initiative to the Senate floor for a vote and to vote in favor of it and watch it become law. Uh, so we have created the framework. The challenge we have now is we have not funded and we haven't implemented 940 to the degree it needs to, to be implemented. All you have to do is look at what is happening in downtown Seattle uh, with Seattle police that, in my opinion, are using excessive force against peaceful protesters to know that we need more de-escalation training, uh, more nonviolent uh, techniques, uh, and uh, just more respect between law enforcement and the communities uh, that they police. I know that the situation is fluid, that it's complicated, uh, and it's tough to second guess from the outside. But when you see crowds of peaceful protesters, including friends of mine on social media and Facebook and in their calls and texts who have been tear gassed, a, a friend of mine lives uh, just in an apartment and had tear gas come in through his apartment window. Uh, into his home. And so uh, this is not the kind of communities we want to be living in. Uh, so I would, in the immediate point, call out some of that excessive uh, police activity and really encourage our local law enforcement uh, leaders and local uh, government leaders to 
to rein uh, those police elements in. But in the long term, we've got to robustly fund uh, the implementation of Initiative 940. And I think there are some more steps we need to take beyond 940 uh, to increase police training, to demand more uh, train, more uh, background and more expertise in the work they do. If you look at how much training a social worker or a mental health counselor ha has to receive before they can uh, do their work and their responsibilities, they don't carry a gun with them to work. And it takes years and, and hundreds of hours, thousands of hours of training to become uh, someone in those trusted professions. I think we need more accountability, more education uh, before we entrust people with deadly force uh, in, in police forces in our state. Maybe help us understand the parameters of what the governor and or lieutenant governor can do here. You talk about uh, encouragement. You talk about increasing 940, I, I, you know, I-940 and saying it really doesn't go far enough. Is there more, as the executive, that you can do? Or are you simply waiting for legislation to appear on your desk? Is, is there more, I guess, more of an active role that you can take in this situation? You know, um, as lieutenant governor, it would really be the bully pulpit and advocating with budget writers to fund those decisions. Uh, the governor's office proposes a budget. And so in that role, uh, there is the opportunity to uh, request additional funding and include in that, in that governor's budget submittal more funding for the state criminal justice training commission to train officers and implement. Um, and, you know, as lieutenant governor, uh, I also want to convene uh, leaders of color from around the state to have a continuing dialogue. We had a great community process that led to Initiative 940. Once it passed, we let a lot of that energy go at the statewide level. It's time to ensure those voices are at the table again, uh, to be looking, A, at the implementation of Initiative 940, but also at what are those next steps we need to take. And I would say, increasing the, the mandatory training required to become a law enforcement officer is one of those issues I want to take a close look at. Uh, it, it shouldn't be uh, easier to become a police officer with a gun than to become a mental health counselor or a social worker in this state. We need our police officers to have many of those, if not the exact same skills in the work that they're doing as we expect of those other trusted professions. You're touching around the edges of this. I would like for you to go a little bit deeper if you could. Because at the root of all of this, of course, is the question of racial justice. And we have had many audience questions uh, about this. Uh, it is such a big but important question. And I, I would give you as long as you need to unpack this. How would you work to create a more just and equitable environment for people of color in the state of Washington? Well, the first thing all of us have to acknowledge and have to come to grips with is that our country was founded on a racist foundation from the very first interactions with our native peoples uh, when uh, white settlers arrived uh, to the legacy of slavery that is now 400 years old. Uh, 2020 is, or 1619, last year was 400 years since those first slaves arrived. So when I teach my students in American government at Everett Community College, I talk about how this inequity and this uh, stain was cooked into our constitution and into our system of laws. And so ultimately and fundamentally, we have to go all the way back to the founding and confront uh, some of those original sins uh, that have led us to this moment. Uh, and they were perpetuated throughout our history, the slave codes uh, that were in place that talked about uh, if you killed or raped a slave, you had to pay compensation to the owner. There was no sense that this was a human being. The three-fifths compromise in our Constitution over and over and over again, the Dred Scott decision that said uh, Dred Scott didn't even exist as a human being to bring a lawsuit. All of these sins have to be confronted, and they have led to systemic 
and pervasive inequality and inequity. And I just want to put a number to it. Uh, economists have studied and they tell us that the average white family has 10 times the assets of a black family in this country. $600,000 for the average white family, uh, $60,000 for the average black family in this country. That is the manifestation of two centuries or four centuries, 400 years of oppression and of racism. So this is a big problem uh, that we have to unwind in meaningful ways. Uh, I think the, the steps we have to take in this moment at state in state government are to address healthcare inequities, housing inequities, and educational inequities. We can't solve all of the national problems and all of the national landscape that comes to bear. Uh, but when black and brown communities are, are at higher infection rates for COVID-19 in Washington state uh, than their share of the population, our healthcare system here is broken and unequal. And that's why we need universal single payer so everybody in the state have, has access to care. When it comes to housing, we have to build more housing and we have to uh, see the creation of more housing. It needs to be a public-private partnership and then we need raw, strong and robust uh, tenant protections to make sure that folks aren't wrongfully evicted uh, and that rents aren't driven up so high that they get priced out of their home. And then in the educational space, uh, we still see uh, educational opportunity gaps for our students. Uh, our white students are graduating at fire, far higher rates uh, than other cohorts, and we have to tackle those inequities. That means more wraparound services, uh, more access to uh, the one-on-one -on -one and small classroom sizes in those districts so students can get the, the attention they deserve, access to technology on an equitable basis, and it also means reducing barriers to, to college and to higher education. Uh, we have the one of the best uh, financial aid programs now in the country for higher ed, and yet the lowest FAFSA completion rate. So the students who qualify for this new aid we've approved don't even know about it. And so we've got to tear down those obstacles and those barriers. That is not a complete list. Those are kind of some of the top items we need to tack, uh, tackle. But it does require uh, particularly people uh, whose skin color is white to confront the fact that we are the beneficiaries, myself included. My family emigrated here in 1971. It'd be easy enough to say we weren't here. We had nothing to do with the pilgrims and with the founding. No, I am the beneficiary. The college I went to sold slaves 300 years ago, 200 years ago, in order to finance their continued existence. My education came at the expense of those slaves and those families. All of us are the beneficiaries of an unjust and broken system. We all have a responsibility, not just to tweet uh, and to express our outrage on social media. We have an obligation to fight for progressive change, but also to go shop at Black-owned businesses, to support um, communities of color and their nonprofits and their organizations that are community-led. And we have an obligation uh, to be good partners and allies in this work. Uh, to tear down 400 years of oppression. It's not going to happen in a day, uh, but we also can't let it take 400 years to tear down this oppression either. Before we move on from this, I got a follow-up from Janelle, and this is regarding 940. So I'm going to back us up to the issue of uh, police misconduct and violence. She says, while paperwork, legislation, and funding are issues, we, the black community, don't have time to wait. Instead of more training, why not more intense punishments? I will ask you that as a philosophical question, and I will also ask you, is that something that is within the purview of the governorship, or is that something that falls to municipalities and counties? Uh, neither the governor or the lieutenant governor are uh, responsible for decisions to, to charge. The attorney general does have responsibility if local county prosecutors don't. Uh, but I, uh, Janelle makes an incredibly important point. And at the heart of 940 was eliminating this law on our books that made it essentially impossible uh, to prosecute 
uh, police officers who had committed misconduct. And so uh, that was one of the central changes of 940. It wasn't just the training, but I think the training is critical to changing practices on the ground. It also made it easier uh, to prosecute police officers who do uh, murder uh, citizens on their watch. And I will say, uh, you know, the answer in Minneapolis is not to charge just the one officer uh, who murdered uh, George Floyd, but is to uh, hold every single other officer. If in our home we were standing around and a member of our family committed murder, the rest of us would be charged too. That, sh that same rule should be applied to every police officer that was watching that, that did not take action to save that man's life. Everybody saw what was happening. They all bear culpability, and they should all be charged with murder and held to the full, uh, accountable to the full extent of the law. And I believe the same should happen here in the state of Washington. This is a question that is specifically to do with you sitting in the governor's chair. On Monday, Donald Trump told the nation's governors in a phone conference that they needed to be more aggressive and violent with the protesters. He also threatened to override governors with the Insurrection Act, which would allow him to send U.S. military forces. And I'm wondering, as governor, how would you navigate that situation? Well, I will say our attorney general is, I think, 25 to zero in terms of taking on the Trump administration. Uh, and I saw uh, Seattle City Attorney Pete Holmes say that he uh, would uh, sue uh, using the authority of the city government in that regard as well. I think uh, the answer to a bully who's trying to break the law is to follow the law and use the legal process to hold him accountable. Uh, it is absolutely clear that he doesn't have the authority uh, to send federal troops into Washington state uh, when our state authorities don't want them here. And so I also have to believe we have to rely on uh, the women and men who serve us in the military. I don't believe our fellow citizens at Joint Base Lewis-McChord would turn their weapons on fellow Americans. And so I think we are lucky to live in a nation of laws. We're also lucky to live in a nation uh, with decency and common sense. But I would first turn to the courts uh, and make sure that any order he's trying to issue uh, is not enforced. And then obviously uh, our National Guard and our local law enforcement exist uh, to protect the, the health and safety of Americans and of our Washingtonians. And we would have to work with our National Guard and with our local police to make sure that, uh, that they are making it clear to any federal officials that come into the state exactly who's enforcing the law and in what way. I would like to move on and talk about COVID and the economic recovery. So on Monday, Governor Inslee announced Safe Start Washington's phased reopening, which will determine the pace of reopening on a county-by-county -county basis. I'll just ask you your top-line thoughts on the governor's plan as it's evolving. Well, I, I am in strong support uh, of the governor's plan because it's not the governor's plan. It's the plan that's been put forward by our public health experts. And I believe when we make decisions on this pandemic or on climate change or on any other uh, public health threat, that we should consult scientists and experts as we come up with our response. And uh, I've had a chance to talk to Secretary Wiesman, our fantastic Secretary of Health, uh, who is, uh, you know, been an expert in public health for decades uh, around the decisions and the data points they're looking at. I believe that a phased reopening that follows the data and monitors infection rates is the best way to ensure that we don't see a second spike. And what the governor's asked, which I think is incredibly prudent, is that we get the infection rate low enough that as more people get sick, which they will continue to get sick, that we have the testing contact tracing and isolation spaces uh, to quickly quarantine new folks who get sick. If we can quickly detect 
quickly treat and quickly isolate and do the contact tracing, then we can stop the disease uh, from spreading as we move forward. I think waiting until those tools are in place, which now in Snohomish County they are, our county has asked to move to phase two. In other counties, it was available a little earlier. I think that makes a ton of sense uh, as the way that we step forward. And before we step to phase three or four, that we continue to monitor for at least three weeks what infection rates are doing. And if they spike in phase two because people don't continue to observe social distancing, don't wear masks, uh, are irresponsible, and we are at threat of overrunning our hospitals and our healthcare system, uh, that we step back and do things in a phased, uh, scientific, public health guided way. Uh, so I'm strongly supportive of what he's done. I think when it comes to the future threats like climate change, we need to listen to those same public health experts and let them help us guide our way out of it. You know, speaking of non-compliance, uh under this Safe Start plan, people are going to be urged but not required to wear face masks when they go out. Employers will be required to supply face masks if they have two or more employees in an indoor workplace. And stores are going to be required to post signs saying that masks must be worn. And I'll, I'll just ask you, how do you think states should deal with individuals, communities, businesses, even leaders that are refusing to comply with this? You know, um State government has uh, a lot of power, but is, is largely moral, moral power. We don't have police officers on every single corner in every single business. So we are relying on Washingtonians uh, to voluntarily comply. And I think we have to create community norms uh, that enforce that. I think, um, you know, we have this barber in Snohomish County who's been openly flouting the law and really inviting a conflict uh, in order to become a martyr and become a cause celeb. And I think the approach the administration has taken in the administration to say, we're going to create fines for folks who don't violate the law. I think that's the place where you hit business owners is in their pocketbooks and make it unprofitable not to comply uh, with the law. I think for community members, uh, we need to do more education. Uh, and we need to really be um, creating those those shared expectations. But uh, in light of all the challenges we have in policing, I don't know that we want uh, police officers and law enforcement to be the ones enforcing this because we know from past practice uh, who's going to be enforced against. It's not going to be the white guy with the AR-15 that's standing in the street because they don't appear to do anything to them. It's going to be black and brown communities are the ones that bear the brunt of this. So we have to create community norms and expectations, educate and, and then hold folks accountable, particularly business owners who are flouting the rules uh, by hitting them where it hurts, which is in their pocketbook. Well, you, you mentioned communities of color, and we know that COVID-19 is hitting communities of color disproportionately hard. How, how do you address that? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the first and most important thing we can do is tackle healthcare disparities. Uh, we know that um, communities of color don't have equal access to healthcare, which means that they are more vulnerable to the uh, pre-existing conditions and comorbidities that make COVID-19 more uh, lethal and more fatal for people. Um, in reading, you know, in the states, in other states, they've had as many as 75% of the, the deaths in black and brown communities. I was reading about sort of what leads to that. And there is three factors, the health disparities, also housing disparities. We have low income communities where they're living in close proximity and they aren't able uh, to observe social distancing because their their places of living aren't big enough and they're not separate enough. The final thing is we know that our black and brown communities are more likely to work in frontline professions where they are put in at risk because of the work they do. And so uh, I would say health disparities are the first place, but it's also why we've got to tackle housing disparities and, and access to safe housing for everybody. And we also, I believe, need hazard pay, strong mandates for PPE for frontline workers. And it means we have to look at uh, industries like 
uh, agriculture where, you know, we've got six uh, Yakima area farms where the farm workers are on strike because they're being forced to work in inhumane conditions. And I believe that it is the job of state government uh, to ensure that everybody in Washington who goes to work in the morning comes home in the afternoon uh, and that we should have safe conditions and that we should enforce that using, as I said, fines and the full authority of the law and make sure that business owners are treating their workers well. I also, as we move into the future, um, I agree, I, I appreciate Barbara has commented on the need for criminal justice reform, voting rights, bail reform, other things. There are other systemic inequalities uh, that, that uh, overlay on top of this, but I think when it comes to COVID-19, those health disparities, those housing disparities, uh, and thinking about who's being asked to do what work in our economy are three of the ones that we need to tackle urgently to make sure that as we move forward, our communities of color have uh, just the same uh, health outcomes as everybody else in our society. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a lot of this is tying back into uh, some of what you said about racial ju- racial justice earlier. So it, it, it's all interconnected. You know, we're going to be likely dealing with the economic fallout uh, of this for many years. You said in a recent interview, quote, we need to make protecting critical state services our number one priority in the recovery and beyond. You touched on this a little bit when we were beginning. I would love for you to reiterate what are those critical state services? What? I mean, the state of Washington provides a number of critical services to help people around the state. Half our budget goes to education. So that's the the most important thing that state government in Washington does. Our constitution tells us that it's the paramount duty of state government. So we've got to protect not just our K-12 schools uh, from cuts, but we also need to protect our higher education pathways. We have more people that are displaced and out of work that need retraining to get back into the workforce than ever before. And we've got to make sure that higher education is open and accessible. We also provide a tremendous amount of healthcare services to Washingtonians through uh, the Medicaid program, as well as through uh, the healthcare that we cover through L&I and for our own employees. So we've got to make sure that we continue to provide health access. And I will tell you, in the last recession, uh, there was an 11 plus billion dollar gap. Uh, Our Ways and Means, our Senate Ways and Means Committee staff just gave us the analysis uh, a couple weeks ago. In the last recession, 7% of the gap was filled by new revenue. The rest was from other sources, and that led to devastating cuts. And in healthcare, I'll tell you one of those cuts. Uh, we said we no longer funded adult dental services in Medicaid. Uh, well, it turns out your mouth is a part of your body, and if you don't address uh, really a serious health conditions in people's mouths, they become system problems and lead to really, really bad health outcomes for folks. And so when we talk about cuts uh, and, and an all-cuts approach or an austerity approach, it means less access to education. It means cutting off healthcare services to folks who are struggling. And then the final big category is our safety net. We eviscerated the safety net in the last recession. We cut the temporary assistance to needy families uh, programs dramatically, which provides support mostly uh, to single moms who are trying to raise their kids and get out of poverty. Um, it also, uh, we also cut all sorts of other programs. I voted against uh, the austerity budget uh, in 2011, 2012 for this very reason. We were cutting too deep and we weren't finding the revenue uh, to fill the gap. And so that's what, to me, critical state services are education, healthcare, housing, uh, and the safety net. There are other important things like environmental protection uh, and other things that state government does as well. But in terms of some of those really big critical frontline services, it is the human services, healthcare, and education uh, that are critically important to protect. And that's why we need new progressive revenue now to help offset uh, the need for cuts as we move forward. 
I want to ask you about where that revenue comes from. And one of the first uh, thoughts that comes to mind for me is federal funding. And we know that Congress has passed a number of packages. And this is so vital because the state can't run a deficit. Only the federal government can run a deficit. So I would ask you how you would work as governor to make sure that the state gets the federal funds that it needs for these vital programs that you're talking about uh, to, to keep on functioning. Well, let's be honest, that first CARES Act that passed uh, included, you know, a $500, $500 billion slush fund for companies. We're seeing Donald Trump's, you know, private jet manufacturer get bailout assistance when, and we're seeing uh, the racist policies in the stimulus checks where undocumented folks, not only did undocumented folks not qualify uh, for a stimulus check, if an undocumented person lives in your household, you didn't qualify either. So an American citizen or a permanent resident who is has paid their taxes, is entitled to a stimulus check, didn't get it because of that inequity. And you know, one criticism of, uh, of my opponent is he voted for that stimulus with all those deeply flawed mechanisms. And I think it's time to stand up and say it's not good enough. And Congressman Jayapal, when the House passed the second uh, CARES Act, voted no because it didn't go far enough. And I think uh, that is a criticism we need to, and a conversation we need to have with our federal officials, is let's make sure we're doing things equitably and focusing in on the challenge. Um, it, it is also worth noting that our state has a healthy rainy day fund reserve. And so we've done smart things in our state government to ensure that we have a $3 billion reserve uh, right now available to help meet this threat. So we need more federal funding, we have a healthy rainy day fund, and then we need a new progressive revenue. That combination of those three things I think will get us through this uh, tough moment, get us to the other side, and let us be in a place where we can begin reinvesting as quickly as possible. Will you talk about progressive revenue stream being a, a piece of that puzzle? And uh, I think many people believe that one of the ways to address the our upside-down tax structure here in the state is to close corporate loopholes. You co-sponsored SB 6690, which reduced the B&O tax preference for aerospace manufacturers like Boeing. Do you see this law, laws like this as being the key or at least one of the pieces in helping to balance our, our tax structure here in the state? Absolutely. And, and I'm going to restate what you said about 6690. I raised Boeing's taxes. We gave them a deal in 2013. And they took the deal and then they shipped jobs out of state. And so this year we raised their taxes and imposed an apprenticeship utilization standard on the whole aerospace industry, uh, in part because of that experience we had the last time around. So I'm proud of that we did that. And I'm proud that we convinced the Boeing company that that was the best deal they were going to get. So they supported a bill that raised their own taxes and acknowledged what had happened since 2013. Uh, but that the real, the real fact is that corporate loopholes alone will not fill this gap. There are a number of them, but it takes so much effort to close each and every single one uh, that to get the solution we're going to need in 2021, we're going to need a couple of new tools. We're going to need a capital gains tax at the state level. I believe we need to double the state's estate tax. Donald Trump cut the federal estate tax as a part of his giveaway tax package. I think we need to double our rate to make up it hits only wealthy uh, estates, and it is a progressive revenue source we have available. The third thing, and my colleague Joe Wen, someone who's supporting our campaign, has proposed an, a B&O excise tax on excessive executive compensation. These companies where the CEOs making millions and the frontline workers are getting paid peanuts, uh, we should 
impose a B&O excise tax on that excessive executive compensation and use those funds. Those three revenue tools uh, would, over the course of the next three years, depending on how we scale them and the rates we use, uh, could fill up about half of the budget gap that we've got. So if we have federal funds, if we have the rainy day fund, and if we have three of these new progressive revenue sources, we could really see our way through this recession without deep and devastating cuts uh, like we saw in the last recession. I will say that the other point um, that is important to remember, you know, my, my opponent, my Democratic opponent in this race, uh, heralds the endorsement of Governor Chris Gregoire. She's in all of his materials. She's on the front page of his website. She was the architect of the austerity budgets in the last recession. I'm not going to be looking for budget advice from Governor Gregoire. I'm proud of the work she did on marriage equality, but the austerity budgets are not things that I was proud of. I want to ask about healthcare in particular as it is uh, related to these vital services that you're speaking about, because we get a lot of audience questions about the issue of healthcare. So you were a co-sponsor of SB 5526, which established a public option, also known as Cascade Care. Governor Inslee signed it a year ago. And I'm wondering, how do you assess our progress since then toward universal coverage for all Washingtonians? Well, our, our efforts are really piecemeal right now. Part of this is because we've got a federal administration that is so hostile to expanding health care, and they're trying to undermine everything we're doing. So we're, we are both trying to protect the accomplishments under the Affordable Care Act as well as expand it uh, in, in various ways. But we have not done enough. And by failing to address health inequities, we are perpetuating systemic racism that continues to uh, uh, really lead to disproportionate outcomes for people of color in our state. So I think we need to be really clear, uh, and I wanna be really clear, that I oppose uh, this sort of approach that takes no action and allows these systemic raci- this systemic racism, these pervasive injustices cont- to continue. We've gotta do more, and what we have to do next is uh, really chart the path to universal single payer. I've endorsed the whole Washington initiative, uh, and we have in our state, you know, since uh, the last time we had a discussion about universal health care, uh, we have imposed new payroll taxes for paid family medical leave, and we've imposed a paid uh, payroll tax uh, for the long-term care trust tax. So Washingtonians are now paying payroll taxes. That mechanism exists. I think it's time to use that same mechanism that is progressive. Those who make more pay more. Those who make less pay less. And use that mechanism to support universal access uh, to health care. And thankfully, uh, due to our collective work, we will have an administration in Washington, I believe in January, that will be a partner in expanding health care. And they may not go far enough, but they're going to create the landscape where we can go that final step to assuring universal health care for everybody in our state. The other subject that we got so many questions on was the climate. Uh, I want to talk about some of the work that you've done on the climate front. Uh, as senator, you worked to expand mass transit, we know. Uh, you co-sponsored the low-carbon fuel uh, standard bill, HB 1110, that did not make it through. So I will ask you first, as lieutenant governor, what measures would you push for in 2021 on the climate front? I think the most important and most urgent one is the clean fuel standard. If Washington were to join California, Oregon, and BC, uh, we would form a, a collective sort of green wall here on the West Coast with a clean fuel standard and a shared marketplace to make that a reality. The other reason I like the clean fuel standard is because it really creates 
the first steps towards uh, that circular economy in this space. We would be growing feed crops in eastern Washington, putting farmers in rural communities to work. We would be using biorefineries in Grace Harbor, where there's double-digit unemployment, uh, a, a lack of opportunity, and a biorefinery up at Cherry Point to create those biofuels. And then we'd be fueling our fleets here in Washington with sustainably grown, sustainably manufactured uh, fuels and reducing our climate emissions. That's the blueprint for how we make our economy work. And that's our blueprint, the blueprint for how we grow this economy from the middle out while pivoting away from fossil fuels. So clean fuel standard is first. Second, I would look at some mechanism for an economy-wide price on carbon. And there's a number of ideas out there. Uh, there's been a carbon tax proposal, a cap and invest proposal. Uh, the, there's been uh, additional authority for Department of Ecology uh, to regulate. I support, you know, I, I told the Seattle Times uh, in my last editorial interview, I'm a climate hawk. I support whatever it takes to get a price on carbon because that will create the market pressure and the market mechanisms uh, to invest in the new technologies and the new industries and to pivot away uh, from the old industries and, and things like that terrible methanol proposal in Tacoma. Those things, anybody that thinks they're going to invest in 30-year infrastructure and fossil fuels is crazy because that stuff's not going to be around in 30 or 40 years. It's time uh, that we pivot away from it and the clean fuel standard and a price on carbon are the important way. But I want to go back to the to the uh, racial justice question and the equity question, when we had a hearing on one of those uh, economy-wide prices on carbon, there was about 125 people in the Senate hearing room. And my colleague, Mona Doss, one of our new members of color, uh, was sitting next to me and she said, hey, uh, look out there, do you see a single person of color in the audience? And we scanned for about three minutes, five minutes, we found one person of color in the audience of 125 to testify on climate policy. We cannot allow these policy decisions that will affect the price of energy, that will affect the future of health in our communities to be made just by white voices and white faces. So we have to find uh, communities of color that are going to be most impacted by the effects of climate change, but also can be impacted by the energy prices and other impacts that these policies will have and make sure that they are in uh, at the front of the line, uh, squarely at the table discussing these. There's a great organization called Front and Centered that brings the voices of people of color to climate debates. I believe that we've got to make sure that everybody in our state has a voice in the solutions and it's not uh, you know, a white male-led uh, initiative, that it's one that has everybody at the table. Yeah, so you're saying as in using your bully pulpit, creating partnerships is important. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that the place where the lieutenant governor can really help is to convene an equity roundtable where communities of color are frequently and regularly interacting with lawmakers and decision makers. Uh, you know, that is a role the lieutenant governor can very readily play is to make sure that lawmakers are connected to voices around the state with diverse perspectives to hear about how the decisions we're making are going to impact communities on the ground. We know that uh, the governor has signed a bill to transition to 100% clean energy by 2045. I, I would love to get your thoughts on how you feel we're doing on that deadline. But I have a question from Kevin Jones, and he says the Clean Energy Transformation Act will require a wholesale shift in investor-owned utility portfolios to, to achieve 100% clean uh, electricity. How will this transformation help to dig us out of the $7 billion budget shortfall? Well, the, the good news is the budget shortfall is on a shorter time frame than this decision. So I think that the interaction between the two isn't, uh, you know, 
to move all our energy in three years would become a tremendous cost to our economy. By setting a long-term goal, we're going to steadily do it in ways that are uh, economically sound and don't ri- raise uh, Well, Yeah, so let me break rate. those questions up for you then. Yeah. How do you feel we're doing on our pathway to 100% clean energy by 2045? We just set the goal, but we are on track to meet uh, the goals by 2030. I think once we get beyond 2030, that's where we need technological innovation uh, to help us get there. Uh, we... The, the mix of our portfolio now, the mix of what will be coming online between now and 2030 are healthy enough to get us to those goals. To get from 80%, 90% up to 100, that's going to be the place where we need innovation. And I'll tell you, uh, it's not Pollyanna innovation. We've got in my community in Muckleteo and, uh, uh, a company that's making utility scale batteries uh, that are going to be used to help uh, you know, uh, alongside clean energy investments. So the winds, when the wind's blowing and we need, we have too much power being generated, we can use those utility scale batteries that are the size of shipping containers to store that energy and use it when it's not. Well, as we know with our, our home computers or other devices, what today is a shipping container size battery, by the time we get to 2030 or 2035, will be a lot smaller than a shipping container and a lot more efficient. So we've got to keep leaning in. The governor uh, has sent us a number of proposals around a clean energy fund, and we've funded, I think, two or three rounds of that. We've got to continue investing in that regard. Um, the other piece, and to, to Kevin's question around investor-owned utilities, we've created, uh, because those are regulated monopolies, we've created the tools in our, our state regulator, the Utilities and Transportation Commission, to help them uh, get out of stranded fossil fuel assets. And Puget Sound Energy, for example, the large provider in the Puget Sound area, just sold their stakes in a Montana coal uh, uh, coal interest or a coal plant in Coal Strip and is now pivoting to clean energy sources in the state of Washington. So we've created the regulatory landscape so that those utilities can get out of those bad investments and invest in clean energy here. It does mean that in the short term, rates might go up a teeny bit because of that, because they've got to invest in new technology versus continuing old, dirty technology. Uh, but that's the sort of piece that we're trying to regulate is how do we make sure that energy prices don't go up or spike or go up in, in unsustainable ways that we manage that uh, in an orderly way. And that's why we set that 2045 goal rather than saying, let's do it faster and really jack up rates on, you know, particularly most vulnerable people in our communities. Let's do it in an orderly, more long-term way where we can smooth the costs and let technology catch up to it to make it economically viable for everybody. Okay, we are going to switch over to audience questions now, and we have gotten a ton. Um, Amelia asks, where do you stand on asylum seekers being held in detention in Tacoma during this pandemic? You know, I think our federal government's uh, immigration policy is racist and it's deplorable, and it is uh, incredibly, incredibly um, just disheartening, and uh, and I think it is uh, just inhumane uh, the conditions that people are being held in. And this is one of those unique spots where um, state government doesn't have all the tools uh, to address this challenge. When the federal government has a broken policy, uh, we have some of our hands tied. And our attorney general is in court uh, challenging key elements of those policies now. And that's uh, we're taking that effort. We're also working on the land use side to make sure the Northwest Northwest Detention Center doesn't grow. Uh, you know, the private prison operator wanted to grow that uh, that footprint and have more folks there. And we're standing up to stop that. And we're also uh, we brought together, and it's actually my house seatmate, Representative Lillian Ortiz Self, uh, who said, "Hey, you know, doesn't L and I and uh, the city and the county public health don't they have the ability to inspect these facilities?" And so. 
we're, we've created a, uh, a stakeholder process to figure out between the county, city, state uh, inspectors how we can get folks in there to make sure that conditions are better and use existing laws uh, to enforce it. But we haven't been uniformly successful. Uh, we sued that private prison company under our minimum wage statute because the wages they're paying uh, to the folks that are being detained are not our minimum wage, and the federal courts did not side with us. So not all of our efforts are working. There, We do need federal immigration reform to really address this, uh, but we are looking at every other tool. I also want to take a cue from communities of color in how we uh, work with that facility. There are some voices uh, in the communities of color uh, in communities of color who talked about if we close that facility altogether and it gets sent to another state without a progressive community keeping an eye on it, what could happen to those detainees? So I do think we need a robust dialogue to make sure uh, that we get a better policy and until we do that folks are being held uh, in humane conditions and being treated like human beings. Uh, and we're failing right now and in state government, we're trying to come up with everything we can. Um, unfortunately, not all of our tools are adequate to this moment, but we'll keep pressing on and finding every opportunity we can to hold them accountable. I'll also say just on that point uh, that we have passed uh, legislation uh, to ensure that none of our state uh, facilities are using private prisons out of state and that there are no private prisons in Washington. Uh, we're following the lead of California and other jurisdictions that are saying under no circumstances would we use private prisons for our folks. And the governor is fully on board with that, but that is an important statement we are making with regards to our own footprint. Julie would like to know, what will you do to support black and minority-owned businesses to ensure that they have equitable opportunities to succeed, especially since I-1000 did not pass? Yeah, that, that is a really important question. And I-1000, I think we, we sort of get lost in the details. We forget that it barely failed and with not a very organized campaign in support of it. And so I think that the idea that Washingtonians uh, really support that old policy of I-200 is wrong. I think we should try again. I think the legislature, and we did, we passed the Office of Equity this year, which was a big uh, keystone of I-1000. I think we should make another attempt in the legislature to undo Initiative 200, to delete it from the books. And if the opponents want to take us to the ballot again, uh, I think we need to work uh, together to create a more a more robust campaign than we saw uh, the last time. Uh, I think there are, are some things we can do around access to state contracts, and we've got the Office of Minority and Women in Business Enterprises that's working on that. I also think that we need to be looking for non-traditional opportunities. And there was a proposal, there's some lapsed marijuana licenses that are have had not been used where the folks had to close up shop. Um, and there's been a proposal that we would target those licenses uh, to diverse communities. Not to say that that's the only industry where we should be encouraging minority businesses, but I think when we've got opportunities where the state has uh, business opportunities or licensing opportunities or contracting opportunities, we should be working to ensure that communities of color and business owners in communities of color have equitable access, not just to uh, the opportunity, but also to the training and resources and support to make sure that they're competitive in the bidding process. Uh, beyond that, I think we do need an equity lens for all of state government. So when we're looking at tax preferences, right now we don't have a sense when we're examining a tax preference of what the demographics of that industry are. And I think we do need to have a, an equity lens on all of our budget decisions that we make to understand when we're looking at a particular tax preference, is this just going to benefit 95, 98% white businesses, or is this industry that we're talking about a preference for uh, one that is diverse and that's reflective of our state? I think in every decision we make, we need to be confronting systemic racism, tearing it down, and looking at for those inequities uh, wherever they exist. 
Thank you for that. Uh, Robert would like to know what plans for mental health services you or the Senate have. Pierce County's Western Washington Hospital is overwhelmed, he says. Yeah, uh, you know, our state is in the 40s, I think 45th or something like that in mental health spending per capita. So it's an area where we have a dramatic need for further investments. And before COVID-19 hit, we had a really strong plan to begin increasing our investments or to continue increasing our investments. We have a plan to build a new behavioral health hospital at the UW campus to provide more providers, more resources, more research, more support. We also have a really, really ambitious plan of creating more community-based treatment options so that the state mental hospital doesn't uh, have to take so much of that caseload on. The challenge we have now is we don't have enough community-based care. And so folks aren't getting the care they need when their condition is uh, more mild and their, their conditions are becoming more severe to a point where the only place where they can receive that adequate treatment is at the state mental hospital, which is then uh, becoming overwhelmed. And so we've got to create the continuum of care. And we had a, a UW uh, psychiatry professor come talk to us about how really the system requires more primary care, all sorts of provider levels, because for most people, uh, a mental health condition is one that can be easily managed if you can catch it early and provide uh, either uh, therapy or treatment or medication or whatever the combination is for the for, for, for a person, but our primary care doctors don't have all the supports they need. There aren't, there isn't access to the primary care like there needs to be, and there isn't access to all of the sort of layers of care that we need. The only thing we're providing uh, is that most acute care, and then that is really scarce. So we've got to create the whole continuum from the state mental hospital on down to your primary care doc to make sure that folks are getting the care they need. We also are not paying our caregivers what they need, and so. Folks uh, go to work at Compass Health, for example, in my community, they get paid just barely above poverty wages, and they had to get a master's degree to get there. So they stay just for the minimum amount of time to get uh, their license, and then they jet. And so there's this churn uh, in community mental health that we've got to tackle as well. So the answer is a lot more spending, a lot more resource from those uh, progressive new taxes. This is one of those areas where if we have an austerity approach, our already tannered mental health system is going to become even worse again, like it did in the last recession. We've got to protect what we've got, continue to grow it, and we need that continuum of care from the community all the way on uh, to the most acute care. The final thing I'll say, the answer is not private hospitals either. We had a private psychiatric facility up here in Snohomish County that had a horrible safety record. Uh, Seattle Times did an expose and we have We've had to really intervene with more uh, more oversight and more uh, state regulation of that. So we've got to make sure that this care is delivered in a safe uh, and credible way and not uh, with someone extracting profits out of it, which has been the model that we see in some places. I will just say we have just a couple minutes left. And uh, I will ask this question, which uh, given the events of the last week or so, I think is quite appropriate. Someone asks, uh, how you will carry out the duties of your office without giving platform to white supremacy and mil uh, militia-affiliated members. And I would make that question actually a little bit broader. Uh, we know that there are uh, members of the state legislature who have been directly linked to white supremacy, and that has exacerbated the problem and in many ways uh, given it cover across the state. In your mind, uh, as a lieutenant governor with the bully pulpit or as governor, how do you address this, what seems to be a, a real growing problem here in the state of Washington? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, I don't, I, I can't tell you that I have a complete answer to that. I think that's an issue we're all going to have to grapple with. Um, you know, it has not lost on me that, um, you know, an armed bunch of thugs stormed the Michigan Capitol so the legislature couldn't meet, meet and no one did anything. And a bunch of peaceful protesters want to speak out against police violence and they're getting tear gassed and they're getting, uh, you know, beaten and worse. And so I do think that the way we're approaching this challenge is identifying and it's highlighting the racism that exists in our society. And it's something we all have to stand up to. Uh, I will say, I think that the approach uh, that Democrats in the legislature used uh, with regards to Representative Matt Shea, who was identified as a domestic terror threat, um, and it was, uh, you know, independently researched, and we there was an expert hired, led to a ton of political pressure uh, on the Republican Party, on his own caucus, and ultimately, I believe, led to his decision to leave uh, the legislature. So I think we don't always have, uh, you know, the, the, the House Democrats wanted to expel him, uh, but they couldn't get Republicans to join with them. I think the answer then is to just put so much public pressure and attention on these bad actors uh, that they are forced uh, to leave. And, you know, whoever comes behind him um, is going to still be a right-wing Republican, and we're going to have to be careful and monitor and make sure. Uh, but I believe that they won't be a domestic terrorist, at least, which is a step forward. Uh, but I do think calling people out for their behavior, there was a Republican representative up here in Snohomish County, Robert Sutherland, uh, who was uh, posting pictures on Facebook with the Proud Boys and other white supremacists in the city of Snohomish. He's standing there holding his um, you know, assault rifle alongside them. We have to call that racism out. We have to uh, highlight it, and we have to call on legislative leaders to take it seriously. The other thing is, you know, the, Lieutenant Governor Habib took some heat for saying that folks with guns weren't going to be allowed in the Senate gallery while we were in session. And there were legislators, candidly, from both sides of the aisle uh, who gave him flack for that. But I do think the Lieutenant Governor has a role in enforcing norms of a civilized society, and we shouldn't allow people with AR-15s to sit in the Senate gallery. Uh, we shouldn't allow that kind of behavior on the Capitol campus. We need more security on the campus for the public, for the staff, uh, let alone uh, for those that are making decisions there. And so I think that uh, across the board, from small actions like the Senate gallery all the way to some of these protests, we need leaders that are willing to take a little bit of heat, make some uncomfortable decisions to provoke the big questions and make sure that our society is continuing to confront this. And as, uh, you know, as a white male, I understand that I bear extra responsibility to call out racism, to speak against it, uh, and to challenge uh, folks who look like me to think about these issues in different ways uh, with more nuance and with more open hearts. I, I am an LGBT person, so I've had the experience of facing discrimination. And in my career, I've tried to take both my personal experiences of discrimination along with my privilege and tried to fuse those two together uh, to move the ball forward. And uh, whether it's undocumented folks or whether it's expanding health access uh, or whether it's reproductive health care for everybody. I have a documented record of advancing more opportunity for more communities around the state and making our state more inclusive. That's the work I want to do. Well, I can't thank you enough for that. I can't thank you enough for all of your thoughts uh, on, on, on we've covered so much ground this evening and I, I feel we could continue right on, but our time is, is, is done now. And I will just uh, ask you one last time uh, to give your, your website and maybe just a couple closing words. Yeah, I would just say uh, we are working really hard to build a grassroots campaign. So anyone on this, uh, on this Zoom or anyone that's hearing this broadcast that likes what I had to say, we need you to introduce us to folks in your community and in your circle. 
So Marco Forwa, which is marcoforwashington.com, marcoforwa.com, uh, on social media at Marco Leas, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. My email is marco at marcoforwa.com. Uh, connect us to folks in your communities, share what I've said, but more importantly, invite us to come talk to folks in your community and have the same dialogue. Uh, we are finding amazing connections and amazing uh, progressive friends all over the state, but we have to meet folks one by one. And when you're running statewide with the primary in two months, we don't have an, a lot of time, so we got to get on it. We also need to build that small donor army. Uh, you know, my opponent has a lot of big money backers. He has millions of dollars in his own uh, pockets that he can put into this. I don't have that. I'm a I'm a state senator who makes about $50,000 a year, and I come from a middle-class family where we don't have millions of dollars set aside for this purpose. I'm depending on a lot of Washingtonians uh, chipping in uh, 5, 10, 50 uh, bucks at a time to help us get there. So I uh, would really appreciate that as well. And at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm Marco Leas. I'm a lifelong Washingtonian, a state senator, and a college professor. And that's why I'm running for lieutenant governor is to make sure that every Washingtonian has the same opportunities I've had and that we're building a bold and inclusive vision uh, for the future of our state. Thank you again to Senator Marco Leas. And for those of you listening on radio, his name is spelled M-A-R-K-O-L-I-I-A-S. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. Thanks also to Louise Pathé for her help. A reminder to join us on Tuesday, July 9th for a town hall with candidates for the state legislature in the 5th Legislative District. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to all of you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.